Well, good morning and welcome. It's good to have you here this morning on that kind of unusual weekend that falls between Thanksgiving and Black Friday and Cyber Monday. It can only be called Leftover Weekend. Now, I don't know about you. I love Thanksgiving dinner. I love the turkey and all the stuff that surrounds that meal. But I really also like Leftovers Weekend. Think about it. We get... We get uh, more turkey dinner, obviously. We get turkey soup. We get turkey sandwiches. We get turkey burritos. We get turkey smoothies. It just doesn't get better. It doesn't get better than that, does it? I mean, you want to join me for a turkey smoothie after church today? No. no. <laughs> I don't blame you. I'm not so hot on that one either. But, but it's great to have you here. Thanks for being here. Thanksgiving is a fabulous time. We were with our family. I hope you had a chance to be with family and friends this weekend to enjoy some good food, some good conversation. It's our tradition as a family when we gather to spend time talking about things we're thankful for. And our 12-year-old granddaughter and her family, they moved from one school district to another. So, so this fall, Becky had to go to a new school. Now, she's 12 years old. She's in seventh grade. That's a tough time to move to a new school. It's, it's a difficult time. And, and when we're going around the table, she talks about how grateful she is for her new school, how thankful she is for her new friends, Good friends, better friends even than what she had had at her previous school. And as she's talking, I'm transported 30 years back in time to 1988. In 1988, the summer of 1988, our family went through a, a huge transition. I'd been serving as the pastor of a church for eight years, and I resigned on, on June 30 of that year. In July, we made a move. We went from a four-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath house to a two-bedroom, one-bath townhouse, which wouldn't be bad if it was just me, but I have a wife, and we have two daughters. And suddenly, things were getting real crowded. In the midst of all of that, my wife went back to work full-time as a nurse at the hospital. Our girls had to go to new schools, all because I was going to go to get my doctoral degree at Michigan State University. Oh, yeah, come on. Yeah, we've had a good weekend, Spartans. We took, we took the Las Vegas Invitational in basketball. Yeah, we played yesterday too in football. and They won. I'll give them, they won. But it was, I mean, junior high football. I mean, it was bad. It was not a good game. But they won. They came out on the top side. Unlike another school that played football yesterday <laughs> that didn't win, which is why Brady's not here today. He could not get out of bed this morning. He was paralyzed. Deep, deep grief over there. Uh, uh, we were, I was doing my doctoral work at Michigan State, and, and so we were in this huge time of transition, and the girls were moving to a new school. And So on Thanksgiving, as we're driving from East Lansing up to Grand Rapids to have dinner with my folks, we started our conversation like we've always been doing on Thanksgiving. What are you thankful for? What are the things for which you want to be grateful today? And we're driving, and, and each one's taking a turn, and we're just going around between the four of us. And then one of our daughters says, and the other one echoes it. She said, I'm thankful for my new school. I'm thankful for my new friends. I'm thankful for friends that are better friends than the ones I'd ever had. You see, the girls asked us a lot of questions when we were making this move. Uh, one of the questions was, Dad, are we poor? I said, no, we're not poor. 
we're just going to have to be more careful with our money. We don't have the same income that we had before. Well, we're going from this big house to a small house. I just thought maybe we were poor. No, it's okay. We're going to be okay. And then questions like, do I really have to share the bedroom with her? You see, we have one daughter that's really neat and the other daughter that's casual. <laughs> Who believes the floor is a hanger and you put your clothes on it. And she says, I hung it up. I laid it on the floor. What's the problem? And you'd walk into that one bedroom that they were sharing and one side would be neat and the bed was made and it was all put together. The other side was different from that. But the big question they had, will we ever have friends? You see, they'd only been in one school. They'd only known one set of friends. And when you're 12 and 15 and you're moving to a new school, you wonder, will I ever have friends? Will they accept me? Will they like me? Will I find anyone who wants to be my friend? And to hear them talk about new friends, better friends, really good friends, some of whom continue yet today, 30 years later, in friendship with our daughters. Yeah, that was a pretty special Thanksgiving. I hope you had some time to reflect on things you're thankful for this Thanksgiving. I hope you had a chance to step back and take a look and, and see what you have, relationships, things, all that you have, and had a heart of gratitude for it. But more importantly, I want us to live a life of thanksgiving, not just a day of thanksgiving. This morning I want to ask, and then I'm going to answer four questions, four basic questions that I hope will drive us toward living a life of gratitude and contentment. So that as we leave here today, we leave with some tools that will help us be more contented and more grateful, not just because it's thanksgiving, but because that's how I want to live my life as a content, grateful individual. So let me start with the first question. Why should we give thanks more than one day a year? Why is that important? Why should we give thanks more than one day a year? Thanksgiving is filled with traditions, right? Traditions like family gathering together, like a certain kind of meal uh, for us, it's always turkey and sweet potatoes and stuffing and mashed potatoes and, and all cranberry sauce and all of those kinds of things. It's filled with football, walks after dinner so that you can kind of settle things down. And my personal favorite, the Thanksgiving afternoon nap. Now, I managed to snag one of those. It was only 15 minutes. We got seven grandkids. I managed to snag a 15-minute nap on Thursday afternoon. Life is good when Papa gets a nap. I'm just saying. But there are other traditions as well. Some of you get up early on Thursday morning to go participate in some kind of a run-walk event, which I have no idea why you do that. <laughs> why would you leave a comfortable bed to go outside and run in the cold? It makes no sense at all. But good for you, happy for you. You enjoy that. Some of you go... And instead of sitting down at a table at your home, you go and actually you serve other people. You go work at a food kitchen and you serve people who don't have the same advantages that you have. Others of you begin to haul out the Christmas decorations on Thanksgiving afternoon or maybe the day after that. And part of your Thanksgiving tradition is to start decorating for Christmas. I suspect that many of you, like us, also take time to consciously give thanks for the things in our lives. But as good as that is, I don't think it's enough. And I don't think it's enough 
because of some very good reasons. You see, there was this early pastor named Paul. In the years just immediately following Jesus' death and burial and his resurrection, and then he goes up into heaven, Paul goes from being a Jesus hater to a Jesus lover. And he travels all over the Mediterranean rim to tell people about Jesus. And he starts churches wherever he goes. One of the places he stopped and spent several years was a city called Ephesus. It's in what is now northern Turkey. And after he left Ephesus, he still had these people in his heart. He still cared for them. And so he would write them a letter. And in his letter, he said this. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, here's a part of what it means to be a Jesus follower. You are always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in another letter that he wrote, this one to a group of Jesus followers in the city of Thessalonica in northern Greece, he says kind of the same thing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Always giving thanks for everything. Giving thanks in all circumstances. And we go, well, wait a minute now. Paul, you don't understand my life. I can give thanks when things are going well. It's easy to give thanks when things are going my way, but things aren't always going my way. And how am I to give thanks in the midst of pain and difficulties? How am I to give thanks for a boss who is erratic and random and hard to work for? How am I to give thanks when I get a diagnosis of a serious illness, maybe even a terminal illness? How am I to give thanks when my home is being blown up, when people are hurting me, saying things about me, when all kinds of stuff is happening around me, am I supposed to give thanks for that? That's where our struggle comes, right? But let me say something. I had a boss once when I was working in the university world who was all what I just described, erratic, random, hard to work for, hard to please, and I found that when I began to give thanks for him, for the lessons I was learning about leadership from a negative perspective, my life settled down a little bit. I was more content. When I began to be grateful for what I was learning, even though it was a hard way of learning those lessons, I began to realize that this was going to be good for me. This would be helpful for me. What happens when you don't get that promotion that you wanted? when you get that diagnosis, when you find yourself being downsized, that's a place to give thanks that you know that God is there, that he's holding you, that he's walking with you, that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he loves you, even in the midst of the pain and the circumstances that you're facing. So when Paul says, I want you to be giving thanks always in every circumstance, he's not just saying when things are good, but even when things are hard, not giving thanks for the pain, but giving thanks for the knowledge that God is with you, that he's walking with you, that he will be enough for you. So while I'm grateful for the day in which we give thanks as a people, I don't think that's enough. I believe that as Jesus' followers, we're called to do more, that our lives are to be constantly marked by gratitude and thanks, which leads us to our second question. What destroys our thankfulness? What is it that more than anything else 
destroys our thankfulness. And in a word, I believe it's envy. Envy destroys our thankfulness. Many people would think that the opposite of thankfulness is unthankfulness. I believe in reality the opposite of thankfulness is envy. That it's envy that eats away at our thankful hearts. It's envy that keeps us from being grateful. In every church that's meeting today, in every home, in every stadium, in every bar, in every restaurant, in every hospital room, in every health club, in every mall, in every store, there's someone who thinks, if only I were more like him, if only I were more like her, then my life would be full. If only I were taller, if only I were cuter, if only I were stronger, if only I were healthier, if only I were smarter, if only I were wealthier, then I would be happy. If my parents were more like his parents, if my children were more like her children, if my job was more like their jobs, which seemed so fulfilling, then I would be happy, then I would be content, then I would be set. But envy destroys our gratitude. We're thankful for what we have, our car, our house, our vacation, our retirement account, our wardrobe. We're thankful for what we have until we see what someone else has. We see their car, their home. We hear about their vacation. We hear about their retirement account. We get a glimpse of their wardrobe. And suddenly we're not content anymore because we envy that. We want that. We think somehow we deserve that. And what we have is no longer enough. And our gratitude is destroyed by envy. You need to understand that left unchecked, envy has more consequences. It doesn't just destroy our gratitude. It has deeper consequences. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And he wrote a number of proverbs and wise sayings. Listen to what he says about envy. A heart of peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. You see, when envy starts to chew away at us inside, it takes a toll. It makes us bitter, unpleasant, not nice to be around. It starts to churn in our belly, and it creates all kinds of physical instances and responses. Because envy ultimately destroys us. James was a brother of Jesus. And after Jesus left this earth and returned to heaven, James at one point sat down to write some of his memories of his brother and his teachings. And this is what James says. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Because you see, if I'm envious and I'm selfish about that, what you have, and I want it, I now become manipulative, and I become greedy, and I become unpleasant because I'm trying to take from you what you have instead of rejoicing in what you have. Now, none of us wants to have envy in that fashion. We don't want to think that envy is rotting our bones, 
or that it's creating this environment where we find disorder in every evil practice. So understanding that we are to live a life of thankfulness and understanding that envy will keep us from giving thanks because we want what someone else has. We ask our third question. What do we need to be truly thankful? Well, the answer is wrapped up in our big idea for today. And this is our big idea. True thankfulness will come only from a life of contentment. True thankfulness for you and me will come only in a life of contentment. If envy destroys thankfulness, I believe that contentment builds it. So let me explain. There's a book in the Old Testament of the Bible. It's called Ecclesiastes. It was written by this man named Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. He was a king of Israel. His father was the great King David. Solomon had wealth and wisdom, power and honor. He was the wealthiest, wisest, most powerful man. And as he comes to the end of his life, he begins to reflect over his life. He's had everything that he's ever wanted. And he begins to reflect on what's truly valuable. And he writes it down because he wants to preserve that for his son and for, ultimately, even you and me. So Solomon writes this book called Ecclesiastes. Now, most people have never read Ecclesiastes. So if you say, I didn't know there was a book by that name, that's okay. If you say, I never read it, that's okay. I wouldn't know where to find it. That's okay too. But you may have heard a couple of things from Ecclesiastes, like eat, drink, and be merry. You've heard that, right? You probably heard it on Thursday. Hey, let's sit down, eat, drink, and be merry. Well, that's from Ecclesiastes. Actually, seven times over in Ecclesiastes, including one of the passages we're going to look at in just a minute. Now, if you've also heard eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, that's not Ecclesiastes. That's Isaiah. But... That's just free. You didn't need to know that. <laughs> the other thing that people know about Ecclesiastes comes from a song, sung by a music group 50 years ago called The Birds. See if you know this song. Nineteen fifty-nine, Pete Seeger wrote that song based on Ecclesiastes chapter three, verses one through eight. Ecclesiastes three, one through eight talks about this contrast: a time to be born and a time to die, a time to laugh and a time to mourn, a time to dance. All of that. And it was put to music. And then the birds turned it into a song that made them more or less a one-hit wonder 50 years ago, 1965. That's Ecclesiastes. But that's usually where the end of Ecclesiastes goes for most people. We're going to expand that just a little bit today and look at a couple of other verses from Ecclesiastes. Because it's important for us to understand what it is that can help build thankfulness. We start with this word from, from King Solomon. This is what I've observed to be good. He's looking back over years of his life and he says, now, this is what I've learned. This is a good thing that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. 
Look at that. It's appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, to find satisfaction. That's wonderful. It's obvious that God wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to enjoy eating and drinking. Despite what you may have heard about God, that he's some kind of a cosmic killjoy, that it's his goal to make our life as miserable as possible, to steal our joy and to constrain our fun, God says, no, I want you to be able to eat and drink and find satisfaction in life. Now, we can talk about gluttony, we can talk about drunkenness, we can talk about excess. That's for a different talk. Understand right now that God wants us to enjoy life. That it's a good thing when we enjoy life. That it's part of what he intends for us because that is their lot to enjoy life as you know it today. He goes on and says this, moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil. This is a gift from God. Think about that. This is the second time now that Solomon has mentioned lot in life. Usually when we think, well, it's my lot in life to suffer. It's my lot in life to work this boring job. It's my lot in life to live in this miserable home. It's my lot. We usually think of it negatively. But in this context, it's all good. It's all positive. It's as, if there, it's as if Solomon is saying, when you have wealth and possessions, when you have food and drink and a good situation, that is because of God's gift to you. That's his circumstance for you. That's his love being shown to you in these good things. You see, God made you the way he made you. He equipped you with the skills and abilities, the mind that you have. He's put you where you are, with the people around you. He's given you the job that you have, the relationships that you have. And because this is our situation in life, this is our condition, this is where we are, we need to receive it as his gift to us. It's no use wishing you were someone else, because you can't be someone else. You can only be you. It's no use wishing you had someone else's abilities or possessions or looks because you can't change any of that. But when we accept our lot, then Solomon says this. They seldom reflect on the days of their life. In other words, we're not looking at, oh my goodness, I only have this much time. Instead, God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. When we accept who we are, where we are, the situation that we're in, when we realize God is there with us, we then begin to find that elusive thing called contentment. We begin to realize God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. We don't compare ourselves to others anymore. We don't wish we had what our neighbor has. We don't even wonder how long we're going to live. Instead, we are filled with joy for what we have, we become content, which leads us to our final question. How do we cultivate a life of contentment? How do we cultivate a life of contentment? If that's really what we're supposed to be demonstrating, how do we do that? Well, realize, first of all, that it begins with a choice. I choose contentment. Paul, that first century follower of Jesus who becomes a pastor of these churches all around the Mediterranean area, 
not only wrote letters to the people in Ephesus and the people in Thessalonica, but he also wrote them to the people of Philippi. Philippi today is in northern Greece. You can go there and see the ruins of the city. It's a phenomenal thing. But he writes them a letter. And in that letter, he says this to them. I have learned to be content. Don't read that too fast. I have learned to be content. It's not something that happens automatically. It's a choice. He said, I've learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances, I know that what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. And he goes on. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He says, I've learned to be content. I've learned the secret of being content. And I say, okay, Paul, that's great. You know the secret. Would you mind telling us the secret? And he says, I'm really glad you asked. Let me tell you the secret of being content. Here it is. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's the secret. If you want to learn to be content in every circumstance, it comes through trusting Jesus. And that's the second point here. It's a choice, but we must choose then to trust Jesus. This is what Paul is meaning when he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. As I trust Jesus, I gain the strength to learn to be content. You see, if you don't trust Jesus for all things, then things are going to become your God. But things will never satisfy you. If you don't trust Jesus, the source of all pleasure, you're going to make pleasure your God. And pleasure will never satisfy you. Because when you try to get out of money or sex or clothes or houses or friends or trophies, your sense of well-being and contentment, you will never be satisfied because that's not what they were intended to be ever for us. Without trusting Jesus, every one of us thinks that the good things, the good experiences or the good circumstances are the things that we need to be finally content but we need to trust in Jesus for our contentment, for his strength to help us learn to be content, to go on trusting him because we know that he is good, even when things around us seem to be crashing, and to believe that he's given us everything we need for right now. Maybe not for tomorrow, but for right now. I like to put it this way. Contentment <clears throat> is resting in who you are, in who you have, and in what you have. Contentment is resting in who you are, in who you have, and in what you have. And instead of looking at someone else or someone else's circumstance, instead of looking beyond yourself to begin to focus back in and believe that God has given you what you need and who you are and the people you need, in any given circumstance of life. So let me give you some suggestions for cultivating contentment. First of all, practice gratitude. 
one of the ways that we can begin to build a heart of contentment in addition to trusting Jesus is practicing gratitude. And it can be as simple as this, that maybe two or three times a week as you sit at dinner with your family, that you just say, what are you grateful for today? What's something for which we can give thanks today? And you begin to develop this rhythm of practicing gratitude. Instead of storing it all up for one day a year, we begin to spread it out over time and practice gratitude with the people around us. When you sit down with your friends to ask, let's start with talking about things we're grateful for. What's something you're thankful for today? And you begin to look for opportunities to practice gratitude. Secondly, stop comparing yourself to others. Stop comparing yourself to others. That's a no-win game. I'm, I'm not a fan of Facebook because everyone is perfect in Facebook world. Everyone has the perfect vacation, the perfect family, the ideal situation. Nobody ever puts their junk on Facebook. Nobody ever talks about the disaster that they've experienced, the pain that they're having. Facebook's an artificial world, but we compare ourselves to our friends on Facebook. And we think, oh, if I could be like that, I want to be like that, I want to be like that. Stop comparing yourself to others. It just creates envy. Envy destroys thankfulness and rots your bones. Don't do that. Third, avoid the trap you'd, of believing you need, fill it in, to be content. A new car, a new house, a new kitchen, a new wardrobe a new family. None of those things are going to satisfy you. You get a new car and then it's a year old. You get a new wardrobe then it's out of date. You get a new house and then somebody else gets a bigger one. You get a new family and they bring all their stuff with them and they think, oh, that wasn't a step up. <laughs> so stop believing that you need to have something more to be content. And trust Jesus, to give you the strength to be content with who you are, with who you have, and with what you have. And then finally this. Help others. Get outside of yourself. Because when we start to help other people, when we share our time, our talents, our resources, our money, our abilities, when we begin to share that with other people, it helps us to better appreciate what we have to appreciate who we are and to understand that we have things to offer other people. So we come back to our big idea. True thankfulness will come only from a life of contentment. Thanksgiving is past. But let's not stop giving thanks just because Thanksgiving is past. Let's continue to be grateful for who we are for who we have and for what we have. Let's pursue a life of contentment which becomes visible as we give thanks every day for the many blessings that we have. Would you stand please as we close in prayer? Father, we give you thanks for all that we have, all that we are. And sometimes it's hard to be thankful as we go through hard times, difficult situations. 
But even there, we can be thankful that you are with us, that you never leave us or forsake us. Help us not to be thankful just for the good things, but for everything. Because in them, we find you. And you never fail us. Create within us a heart of gratitude that isn't isolated to a day or a season, but becomes a practice of our life so that we might give you thanks for your many blessings to us. We thank you, Father, for loving us, for giving us Jesus, for cleaning us up from our sins, for giving us a future and hope. Fill our hearts with gratitude, even as we leave this place today. And may we be content as we walk with you. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Thank you.